Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Wiz and Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start the show, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that, free beer. Thanks to our friends at Beer52, the UK's most popular craft beer discovery club, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash wisdom and cover the £4.95 postage fee and the beers will be delivered straight to your doorstep. As well as the beers, you get a magazine and a snack as part of the deal. They send subscribers a crate of beer each month and there's a different theme for the beers each month. You're able to pause or cancel the subscription at any time. Anyway, on with the show. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is the editor-in-chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine, Phil Walker. New issue of that is out next week. And the former England fast bowler, Steve Harmson, joined us for the first time. Steve, welcome to the show. How are we? Yeah, not bad. I'm, I'm, forget the cricket. I want to know what's going on with the beer. Carry on. I'll have a go at that. I'm quite happy with that. I haven't had one. I haven't had a drink since March. In the March, I've you know, obviously lockdown's been a bit of a nightmare. I've thought, right, I'm going to keep off the drink while the pubs are closed. But you just teased me there. You just teased me. I'm going to have to have a go and have one now. We'll put you a discount, Steve. Don't worry about that. We'll have a chat after this. <laughs> anyway, before we we talk about Steve's career in the game. England announced a 30-man red ball training group for the West Indies series today. There are eight uncapped players at test level. James Bracey, Dan Lawrence, Lewis Gregory, Sakeem Mahmood, Jamie Overton, Matt Parkinson, Sussex's Ollie Robinson and Amar Verdi at Surrey. Phil, given they'd announced a 55-man training group earlier, there aren't that many surprises in this squad. Yeah, a couple of names jump out. I suppose James Bracey's a really high, highly regarded young player. Um, opening bat, down in Gloucester, can play both formats as well and obviously keeps wicket. Uh, they like the look of him. Um, and Dan Lawrence as well, uh, of course, as the star of the winter for the Lions as well. With, with Joe potentially not featuring in the first test match due to the, the birth of his second kid, 
there are one or two places up for grabs that probably wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, it's the, the merry-go-round again, but, you know, three doesn't go in, or four doesn't go into three, so one of probably Sibley, well, Sibley and Burns will play, but, but then you're looking at Crawley, Denley, and possibly Lawrence coming up on the right, on the reel, but... There aren't too many surprises. I, I'm glad to see Saki Mahmood in the, in, in the 25 or the 30-odd um, as a red ball bowler. He's already, I think, shown in county cricket what a white ball talent he is. But as a red ball bowler as well, I know that England are very interested in him. And I've met him once or twice. And, you know, I interviewed him last year for the magazine. He's a really, really impressive kid. He's got a good head on his shoulders. He understands the game and he understands his own game really, really well for a kid of his age. And he's, he's got something quite special about him, I think. Steve, have you seen much of him? Have you seen much of Saki? Yeah, I've, I've seen enough of him to, to sort of make a judgment on him. And actually, there's, there's people who will sort of... This, the pandemic and not having any, any first-class cricket this year, there's going to be one or two people who are... It's going to be to their detriment. And I actually think one of them, the, one of the biggest ones is Mahmood, because I think he needs to to learn with a red ball how to take the ball away from the right-handed batsman, away from off stump. And I think he's only going to do that by actually playing. So I think that would have been his next step. I would imagine Chris Silverwood and you know, the bowling coaches would be looking to think, right, that's the next step in his development. Can we get him to play for Lancashire in the 15, 16 red ball games he's going to play this year and get him to take the ball away from the right-handed off stump? Because... Arguably, that's all he really needs to work on. He's got the ball that comes in towards you know the, anybody that's got technical deficiencies outside of stump. He's got enough pace to get by, and I think he'll get more pace as he gets older and stronger and bowls a lot more. So I think it's this is this sort of break in play has probably not come to at a good time for him. But I'm I was impressed by what I've seen. I think he's got a good seems to have a good heart, good engine knows what he wants to do with the ball. So, yeah, fingers crossed he will develop. The England 30, there's no... He mentioned that two or three names that haven't played, but England have got such a strong unit now of 24, 25 players. At any one given time, they can play. And that's across formats as well, from Test Match to, to ODIs to T20. So, nothing really surprised me. One, the one area I'd like to have seen you know, to strengthen up, I'm like Verdi being in there. I really like him being in there because I think he's one that England need to potentially develop on the spin bowling department. Don Best did well during, uh, during South Africa. I was out in South Africa for talk sport. We had, you know, we had troubles with Jack Leach, which was disappointing for Jack, and hopefully he's come over them. Um, but Mo and Ali comes back, and for me, he plays at Southampton. If I've got a 30-man squad, I'm picking the best team. Mo and Ali's in my best team, I play him. So he would be at number eight, Butler at seven, you know, Pope at six, Stokes at five. And you're right, this, you know, the, the, that middle order, two, three, you know, if, if Root's there, he's four, and the three don't, four don't go into three. So for me, Crawley's done well, and I think he, for me, did, he did enough. But I think you've got to bring Burns back. So unfortunately for, for Crawley, I'd probably punt for, for uh, Burns and Sibley to go in up top. I think Denley's is about that far away from being a fantastic player. He's just he's just got to 50, got to 60, and then and then you know, and, and then got out. So I think he, he desperately needs a big, big score. Time's running out for him. And 
you look at Crawley, is it right if I bring Crawley in? Potentially, you look at the age and think longevity. But for me, I think Joe's done enough. Joe Denley's done enough to stay in place. And then, again, you're looking at the bowlers. You've got Broad Anderson, Archer and Wood. And it's three from four for me. So, as much as you pick a 30-man squad, I think England are picking from about 12 or 14 players. And that is a very, very strong unit. And these young players who are trying to get in, have got to be not only on their game, but they've got to be you know, ready and you know, able to go and hit the ground running. Because if they don't, then you know, there's going to be a long queue to, 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 to come behind them. And Lawrence is one of them. Like you mentioned, Bracey's another. But I think they're a, they're, a, they're a decent way down the pecking order because England have got a strong, strong squad now. The only way to play first-class cricket this summer at the moment, we don't know what's going to happen to county season, is if you play test cricket. So young players mm. at crucial stage in their development are potentially losing out on a really important year. So I wonder if that will influence decisions uh, around selection as the summer goes on. Uh, will England be tempted to put in Sakeem Mahmood or Dan Lawrence just because they want them to play? Before we talk about Steve's life in the game, I spoke to Dan Lawrence earlier in the week, shortly after he found out about his inclusion in a 30-man Red Bull training group. He comes across very well and it's particularly interesting on his decision to reject a Pakistan Super League contract for the opportunity to play on a Lions tour. Here is that chat with Dan. How's the training going? I've seen some clips of you batting on Twitter. Am I right in saying that you're training at the Oval as well as Chelmsford? Uh, yeah, just the Oval actually. Um, yeah, it's it sort of, it, it made sense for me to go there with everyone there and uh, and it's not that far away from me anyway. So, so yeah, it made sense to go there. And yeah, it's going really well actually. It's um, obviously after quite a long, quite a long layoff. It's lovely to be, lovely to be back in and, and hitting some balls and, and yeah, just getting back to doing, doing the fun stuff. Yeah, I mean, you must be playing with some of the England guys who you've not really trained with before. What's what's that been like training at the same time as Joffre, etc. Um, yeah, I've been quite fortunate actually. Out of the out of the oval group. Um, I've actually played with or known previously most of the lads. Um, so yeah, the, the only two that I hadn't really sort of spent that much time with before, sort of Jofra or or Joss Butler. Um, yeah, but it's been really good. It's been really good to sort of see how how them boys go about it. Um, uh, and they're really nice blokes. So it, it shouldn't be it, it shouldn't be too hard to fit into that England squad as it is quite a um, it's, it's quite a young squad now and. And there's a lot of familiar faces, so so it's sort of that side of it. It shouldn't be too much of an issue. I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear that you're still only 22. You've been around for quite a long time. You've enjoyed success since you're England on 19 days. It's called hundreds for Essex as a teenager. But in the last few months, you've gone up to another level. You've had uh, you've done really really well, and it's culminated in the the England call up. What, what do you put the improvement down to? Uh, I think there was a there was a number of different things um one of them was a technical change that i made towards the end of last summer um where i just sort of shortened down my my pre-delivery uh, movement and and pretty much just simplified things a lot more and went back to a lot of sort of basic stuff um that that's helped me a lot um it's helped me sort of play the way that that i know i can um and now that feels sort of second nature to me i'm i'm actually putting the scores on paper that i that I always feel like I have been able to um so that's that's been brilliant and then just sort of a a more of an understanding of my game like like you say I know I'm still young but I've played quite a lot of cricket now um so it's 
sort of it, it's I'm no longer the youngster who can sort of get away with can get away with your failure because you're young. I'm sort of I play quite a lot now, so I'm trying to take it upon myself to um, to be as consistent and, and as successful as possible. So talk talk us through the the trigger movement change because it really has done wonders for you. Yeah, it has. Um, uh, there was a game last year at Edgebaston in a uh, in a championship game where I think I still got thirty odd, but I, I just felt like a blind man batting. It was um, yeah, it, it just felt horrendous. I was getting balls that I would usually hit for four if I'm playing well, and then I just thought I looked at the video. My movement was so big, and it was just restricting me from being able to play any of the sort of shots that I wanted to. Um, so I just sort of thought to myself, uh, I think it's time to make a big change, just just for the last couple of games, um, just, just to try and stand dead still and, and, and see how that works. And I netted with it the next morning and really liked how it felt and then thankfully tried it against Surrey in the next game and, and got 100. So from there on in, I've just been trying to tweak that and make sure that's perfect and... Um, and it's been really nice to actually put on the consistent runs that, that I know I can score. And, um, and yeah, really put my name in the hat, which is, um, which is brilliant. Your, your technique is, is quite cool and quite unconventional as well. Like very, very strong wrist, etc. Like, did, did you have a technical role model as you grew up? Like, did you pretend you were someone when you were batting, based your batting technique off <laughs> anyone in particular? Or was it just all very natural, just the way you played? Yeah, uh, it's it's all very natural to be honest. Um, uh, I think to myself it actually feels quite it feels quite normal. And then when I look back on videos, some of the shots that I can play, it it does surprise me sometimes. And it always looks a little bit more extravagant than than it necessarily feels. Um, yeah, like, to be honest, I haven't changed any stroke play, nothing about my game in regards to the shots that I'm going to play or the shot selection. It's just more being having a more solid base to be able to do that, and um, and yeah, like my game, I've never sort of modelled it on anyone. Uh, the only thing I've sort of tried to learn is from older players in my Essex team about how to how to sort of start an innings, how to get greedy when you get in, and stuff like that. And they're the things that I think I've learned over the last sort of six months is is when I actually get the chance, really make it count, and and try and go as big as possible. Because Alistair Cook in particular played a big part in that. You know, having England's greatest run score in the dressing room must, must be pretty helpful. Yeah, it, it certainly does help. Um, he's brilliant because he doesn't, he doesn't actually put, put me or anyone else under any pressure. And he doesn't, he's never that judgmental. But whenever you want to pull him aside and have a, and have a serious chat, he, he's always there to talk to. And, and obviously, it's, it's brilliant brains to pick because he based his game around uh, he had a good technique, but his his mental strength was his was probably his biggest strength, where he allowed himself to get through tough situations. And that's not just with his batting; that'd be the same with his fitness and the way he sort of lives his life. and And he's he's just a fantastic role model. So it doesn't necessarily have to be having a conversation with him. It could be watching the way he trains, how driven and motivated he still is. And you can only learn from that. If someone who's retired from international cricket can can come back and still have a better work ethic than everyone else, then that's how you've got to try and model yourself. In the last few months, just before well, the season was supposed to start, you had that amazing tour of Australia with the, with the Lions. Um, am I right in saying that you had to give up a PSL contract to go, go on that tour? Is that right? Yeah. 
Yeah, that is right. So how hard a decision was that? It's one of the biggest tournaments in the world. After the IPL, PSL is probably the, the tournament which has the biggest reach in terms of viewership, etc. And to, yeah. to decline that, how, how big a decision was that? And how did you go about making that decision? Uh, it, it was a decision that I thought quite long and hard about, actually. Um, because 2020 cricket, it's also been a big part of my development as well. And it's something that I really... I don't just want to be a red ball specialist. I want to be a really good white ball player as well. And it feels, and I want to be able to show everyone that I can do both. Um, but then the long and short of it, when I had opportunity to, to, to go and score runs for the Lions um, and potentially put my name, put my name in the hat for any sort of England selection, that sort of outweighs any sort of league in the world for me. Cause that's something that I've always wanted to achieve. Um, Obviously, the PSL is, is incredible and, and I really do hope in the future that I get the opportunity to play in that. But I think if I think long term in what I actually want to achieve, I think, I think I made the right decision and thankfully I scored yeah, the runs that I did. And then that tour of Australia was amazing. I, th- I think it's the first time England Lions had ever beaten Australia A in a first-last game. What do you think that you guys got right as a group on that tour? Because it was a good Australia A team as well. A lot of those guys had played test cricket and yeah. you guys were... A- very young squad. A lot of you guys hadn't played first-class cricket down under at all. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I, to be honest, it, the group in the winter was brilliant because I think we had a perfect balance of, of training really hard. It actually reminded me of our Essex team a little bit, the way that we went about it. We, we, we became really close as a group, which I think is really important. Um, and, then, and then we trained really, really hard. So it was training with purpose, and then it was getting on with each other and, and spending time as a team. And, and it was led brilliantly by Richard Dawson. Um, yeah, like if, if you look at that lineup in that Australia A put out, it was a really, really good team. And I think a lot of the boys were motivated to do well against them. Um, I, I know I was. And I thought if you do well in that game, then, then it looks really good. So I think a lot of the boys were motivated. And thankfully, thankfully yeah, we put in some good performances. Obviously, uh, the the England Red Bull squad for this summer it's a it's a much bigger than normal squad for a home series. But what's it like to get that first call up at the age of twenty two? Uh, yeah, it's really exciting. Um, I, I I was hoping that I was going to be involved, but you, you never actually know until until you get that final call. Um, yeah, it's it's just really really exciting times and. And I feel like I'm in a really good place now, the best place I've ever been with my cricket to um, to go into something like that and, and really show off what I can do. Um, yeah, I'm really keen to go in and train really hard, try and impress the right people and then and hopefully at some stage get the nod. Obviously everyone obviously everyone wants to play for England, but as like as as a twenty two year old, there aren't any other opportunities to play cricket this summer other than for England at the moment. We don't know what the camp season will look like at the time of recording. So is there almost an extra desperation for you to or just have the opportunity to bat again after how well the last few months have gone? Yeah, I know. It was, it, it was really frustrating, actually, for me because I, I was in such a good place after that, after that Australia series. I really wanted to get back to county cricket and, and really pile on the runs there and then, and then sort of force their hand in selecting me. Um, but it's really good that, they, that they've sort of remembered that I did really well and and I think they know that I'm in quite a good place at the moment. So, um, yeah, so I'm very thankful to be in this squad because 
obviously with county cricket, you're not really sure what's going to be going on at the moment. Um, like, well, when the start date's going to be, what cricket is going to be. And, and I do feel sorry for the people that are not involved in any cricket now. Um, yeah, I'm just really excited to get going and very thankful to be um, training earlier than a lot of other people. So, Steve, we're going to talk a little bit about your career. First up, how, how did you get into cricket? Were you, were you mad for the game as a kid? Not really, no. Um, I think that's why I ended up having the life I did in cricket, where there's a lot of ups and downs. Cricket, for me, was something I played during the summer for maybe 10 weeks. I was you know, always about football, missed the start of the cricket season, missed the end of the cricket season because of football. Uh, and I fell into cricket, really. Um, Jeff Cook, I was fortunate to be at Durham at the right time, where probably four years earlier, generation before me, didn't have the luxury of Durham because Durham weren't there. You would have to go to a lot of, a lot of kids in my area went to Northampton. Um, there was a big connection with Northampton from the northeast, so you know, I, I fell I fell into into, into cricket with a, a bit of luck. Uh, it wasn't something I enjoyed first up. My debut lasted a day and a half. We played Leicester, and I think we started on the uh, obviously Thursday morning. Leicester won the championship that day. I think the bowlers out for about eighty, got five hundred, and then bowlers out for one hundred and twenty. The game was over in a day and a half. Then I missed. I went to Pakistan that summer. That sorry, that winter with England under 19s. I lasted about a fortnight. Didn't realise what the world was. Came back. Wasn't really that interested in cricket. Missed the whole of 1997 season with a back injury, and um, I, I sort of fell back into it, it around Christmas time, the winter time, when Jeff Cook came back and had another go at it to then get ready for the start of the 98 season. And from there, I never looked back. Met a guy who was unbelievable in stature, fantastic captain, great character, and then David Boone. And he sort of, you know, his guidance with a, a, a very young Durham side at the time was, uh, was brilliant. And say from there, I've, I've very rarely missed days of cricket after that. So to say I was obsessed by it, no, I wasn't. I wasn't the obsession like an Andrew Flintoff, who is obviously I'm very close to. He was, he was destined to play international cricket from the age of about 12, 13 year old. Um, I was wanting to play football. I had no interest in cricket whatsoever. And I think the ups and downs of the game for me, that helped because I, because I wasn't sort of obsessed by it. I wasn't, it wasn't the right, let's get back after a day's play and go and watch 2020 in the hotel or on the TV. It's like the last thing I could have, last thing I wanted to do was go and watch cricket on a television. I love playing the game, but I, I, it wasn't a case of, right, I'm obsessed by it. So it didn't get me down. If I had a bad day, now I'll shrugged it off, come back tomorrow, and uh, I'll make sure I was, I was better tomorrow. And that, that sort of philosophy helped me throughout my career because I did have passages of time where I was you know, on an unbelievable high, but I also had a, a passages of, of, of time where I was at rock bottom. But I was because of that sort of feeling towards the game. I was, I was, uh, I was able to put it to one side and and move on to the next day. Was it Booney then who convinced you that you could really become something in the game? Because you hear a lot of Durham players from around your era saying that really that he, more than any other individual figure, with all due respect to Jeff Cook and so on, he was the one that really instilled a kind of belief 
in what was still a very young, nascent, just a few years old as a first-class county. Was it, was it Boone, really, who got you around the colliery, colliery your neck and one or two others? I think Boone got around the club. I think it was the club that Boone got around. I think when Durham first started in 1992, went for the, the names, which they had to. They had to get the big names. The likes of Botham, the Larkins. Dean Jones was overseas. The likes of uh, David Grevenu was, was captain. But once that went over the other side, Jeff Cook got the club, sort of club back, I think is probably the best way to describe it. It's been written in a few books about the club and the history of the club, that Jeff got the club back. And it, that, in that time, that early years time, it was his, he had to get around uh, the, the villages and the mining towns in the area where, which was such a hotbed to try and identify kids at, so between the age of probably between the age of 14 and 18 and in that in that category in that bracket was Collingwood Harmison probably Colleen Betts uh there was a lot of young good young players coming up at, at that time and then once the more established stars started sort of come for like the swan song of their career then Jeff got a hold of the club but it was how do you get a hold of a club when you're not actually playing and I think the, the signing of David Boone, what he had done with Tasmania not long before, had basically gone from a Whitman boys in Sheffield Shield cricket to winning it. I think that there that floated Jeff's boat, got the club on, and then it was a it was a, a case of direction. And Booney give the Booney give the young lads a, a case of direction that this is how we were going to win. It wasn't a case of how to play the game; it had a case of how to win. And, and go about it winning. And there were some ups and downs. You know, I've seen, we, we laugh about it. We got beat in Holland. We got beat in a, a Nat West game in Holland. And I've never seen Booney so down and you know, like you'd not believe. And you know, he, he had, a go at him, had a go at us and we, we never lost a game after that. And it was a, it was a very, very young side um, led by somebody who, who basically believed in us, but believed in a direction that he wanted us to go in with David Boone, Norman Gifford and Jeff Cook behind that. I think that, that three years was a were catalyst of where Durham really started. I, I find it remarkable that you played for England at 23, yet you've confessed to not totally loving the game. That's a remarkable rise. How did that happen? Um, well, I, would, I should have played at 21 because Nasser Hussein decided that he was going to pick Ed Giddens uh, he decided, well, Jeff Miller tells me a story, but he tells it after dinner that Nasser Hussein picked, he changed his mind when he, um, in 2000 against Zimbabwe. Apparently, Nasser changed his mind at the team on the way to the toss because Cloud came over at 25 past 10 as he was walking out. So he decided that he's going to pick Giddens instead of me. But I don't believe that. Um, but is, I'm, you know, if I'd played in there, there would have been, you know, would have been an extra two year where I might have been available. I might have gotten a few more wickets. But it's just one of them ones. You, you never know. When I was playing the game, I loved it. But away from the game, it wasn't something that, that it was, it wasn't an obsession. I lived an hour away from Durham. So it wasn't something on my doorstep. You know, I live in Northumberland. Don't live in the county of Durham. I live in a county which doesn't play the game of cricket at the top level. So I wasn't. It wasn't just bombarded on me. So you know, from that aspect, I thought that was the best thing for me because then I've had a bad day. It took me an hour to get home. It was out of my system on a car journey home, and 
you know, from from there, you just get on with your on with your your, your life and your days and your days off. And the family was great, so it wasn't say it was it was something that I enjoyed doing, but it wasn't something becoming an obsession. And that was the that's where sometimes this great game we've got, the people that get obsessed by it are the ones that sort of fall by the wayside or you know, they burn out very, very quickly because the, the game is so, you know, mentally draining that you, uh, you have to have the ability to switch off. Steve, you became the number one ranked fast bowler in the world by the early part of 2004, I think it was, after a stunning 18 months, really. Considering that you, you had your struggles in the early part of your professional life, as you, as you readily acknowledge, how did you adjust to that? How did you adjust to suddenly being considered the number one quick in the world? Out of, out of nowhere, almost. Like, like I've said, it's, I, could, I could put it to one side and move on. Um, but it was, it, was, it, was, it was great at the time. You sit there, you're thinking, I'm playing in an unbelievable side. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, number one bowl in the world is one thing. But when you looked around and the side I was playing in was arguably the best side that has played cricket for England. When you, you talk about the unity, the way the team was, it was it was a, a, an unbelievable unit. So I was quite fortunate and happy that I was playing in in that group. That's when I had a, a few sort of personal struggles. I've said you know many many times that I'm sitting in in a in a hotel room in Johannesburg the week before we go to Port Elizabeth for the first test against South Africa, and I'm going home. I've gone, you know, my head's gone. I'm sort of very emotional. I'm crying my eyes out. Don't want to be aware. I'm, I'm really don't understand what's happening with me at the time. I really didn't know emotionally what was happening with me. And I'm sitting there and you, know, you flick through a magazine or you put the TV on and you, you watch the, 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 as, as tears are running down your face, you're looking at a, a newsreel, which is saying the first test match next week, England's main threat is number one bowler in the world. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, I'm not. I'm a gibbering mess. And things like that, you don't see the human element of what the game of cricket is. So, and it was great. At the time, you look at, you, you look at the, the, when you're now, and you look back at it, you think, I was number one bowler in the world at the time when Shane Warne was around, Ty Murrellisferen, McGrath, Pollock, all these you know, top, top players. So you feel a sense of, of pride, but the overriding thing at the time was the team I was playing in, yes, number one ranked bowler in the world, but we were the best team in the world, and that was a great era to play in. In the last few weeks, there's been a lot of discussion about certain barriers that might face potential cricketers into getting into the game. Daniel Bell Drummond, who went to a private school, said a couple of years ago, there are a lot of kids who love the game like me, have the same natural ability, but because of the schools I went to, because of the par- my parents being able to drive me everywhere, I had a massive natural advantage. Something I didn't agree with is that a lot of these guys didn't have that chance. Now, you're from Ashington, a town that Phil actually knows well. Phil went up there uh, a few, <laughs> few months ago now. A few months ago now. Old country. <laughs> um, but... When you were rising through the, ga- through the ranks, did you have a sense that you had more to overcome to make it in the game compared to some of your contemporaries who were at private schools at the time? Um, to be honest, I, I, didn't even, I didn't even enter my mind. When you're 16, 17, 18, that does not enter your mind. 
Fair enough. If it does, then you're thinking about the wrong things. If I'm brutally honest, yeah, you're thinking about the wrong things. If you're if you're worried about anything other than trying to play cricket, you know what are people thinking of at 16, 17, 18? Is to is enjoy the enjoyment factor of the game, and that's all I was trying to do when I was when I was playing. It didn't bother me. I was from a, a, a you know, mining village, which was quite a deprived area. Didn't bother us. I had to get. It took me an hour to get to to Durham every morning. First year I was there. First year I was there. I couldn't drive, so I was getting a lift off my 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 girlfriend at the time, my wife now, on um, my parents to get me to Simon Brown, who was playing, who played cricket for Durham, who lived the who was the closest to me, which was like thirty five minutes away. Little things like that didn't didn't enter my mind. This is what you had to do as a job. Um, I can understand there's a lot of, of, of stuff going around at this moment in time with the, 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 the Black Lives Matter stuff like that that comes with it. And I, I understand as much as I possibly can do, but I don't fully understand it because you know, the colour of, of my skin and what happened, what happened during my pathway was completely different and I, and I wouldn't even contemplate even having a a comment on what happened to the likes of Daniel Brel Drummond or, or, or you know the the, the, the guys that you know the, the, the friends I've got in, in the game of cricket, you know, the, the some yeah from from the world of from the world of cricket, the likes of Alex Tudor and and Mark Butcher, two of the the, the best human beings I've ever played with. I've ne- never ended one iota of the colour of their skin. You know, this is Tudes. That's Butch. That's Uncle Butch. You know it, what they went through. I couldn't even contemplate to even have an opinion on it because that's their life. This is mine, um, and it would have been. It, 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 it was tough from my area, but it, it, you, know, you, you got through it. You made sure you got to a point where you got yourself on a pitch, and once you're on a pitch, you played the best you possibly could. Phil skipped a little bit of your career. You skipped straight to the bit where you're ranked number one in the world, but you obviously played a few years before that. Uh, I was just looking at who you played against in your opening few test matches. You didn't really get much chance to settle in. You had that great middle, no. Indian middle order, then <laughs> followed up straight away by Steve Wars Australia. Um, but you, 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 had a, you had a decent start to your international career without setting the world alight. And then you got injured during the tour to Bangladesh in 2003. You missed the Sri Lanka tour that followed and returned in time for that West Indy series where you famed you took 7-12. But crucially, via a spell at Newcastle United. So from Dhaka to Sabina Park mm. via Bobby Robson's Newcastle. How, how did that come about? Um, well, look, the, the, so the first part of the, you know, what you're saying there, India, India at home, it was brilliant to make a debut. Made me debut with probably my best mate in, in the game. And that was uh, Rob Keat. And that was... It was an experience in itself. You know, getting your England cap off Nasser Hussain, thrown at you. Well done, Kent. Well done, Durham. And then he just walked off. It's Nasser Wood. He thought that was funny, but yeah, typical Nasser's humour. It wasn't that wasn't that funny, to be fair. Um, we were standing waiting to get a picture with the England captain and your best mate. You know, family's all there, ready to take a picture. And you just see the back of Nasser's head as he walks up the stairs because he's just sort of lost the toss and we're, we're feeling against uh, a very, very good India side. And the baptism had gone into Australia. I came away from Australia. Having carried Simon Jones off in the front of the stretcher, I was on the, I had the, I had the front of the stretcher 
um, realization then I was going to play in the next test match to coming away from Australia in Sydney or in wherever, wherever we finished in the one days to realize that if I can play against this, I can play against anybody. I, if I can put up with this. And when I listened to Kevin Peterson talk about going into that Ashes 2005 and they're saying, what a baptism and you're going in again, you know, you're going into the cauldron. And it was like, hold on, I've just had South Africa. This is where I was born. This is what I've just, if I've just, if 25,000 people can turn their back and boo me and, Bluntington, first te- first one international. I can face Australia at Lords, not a problem. And I felt when I left Australia, no matter who I put against for the rest of you know, the next part of my career, I can play against anybody. Because when you were getting a wicket, another great player came out, and then another great player came out, and then eventually when you were knackered, Gilchrist came out at number seven. That sort of team, if you can play against that, you can play against anybody. So moving moving forward... There was a little bit of a, a sort of lull. See, I was struggling mentally. I was again. I was. I was having a bit of a, an interesting time. And then Derek Pringle wrote an article which Sir Bobby Robson read. Um, and he, at the time at Newcastle, the fitness coach was a guy called Paul Winsper, who used to be at Durham. He left Durham to go to Newcastle when Newcastle trained out the back of, of Chester Street at the cricket ground. And he rang me up. I'd, I'd spoke to him a few times, but he rang me up and said, the manager's read the article. Do you want to come here and train? No ties, no you know, spotlight, not, don't have to be in you know, outside. So we agreed and we, we kept it quiet for eight weeks. There was only the medical staff at England knew that I was training there. Um, and eight weeks later, it was as fit as I'd ever been. It was from a, I was eating the right things. I was, basically Sir Bobby got a hold of me and he took me in the gym one day and he pointed at Alan Shearer, Gary Speed, the great late Gary Speed, Steve, Har- Steve Harper, Shea Given, James Milner and looked and pointed across and said, look at them, you train next to them, you be around them for the next eight weeks. See what it takes to be an international sportsman and you've got a chance. And to be fair, he pointed at Craig Bellamy, Kieran Dyer, Jermaine Jennings, Titus Bramble and a few others in the other corner. And he said, you follow them and I'll kick you out. He says, Cause I can't get rid of them. He says, but I'll get rid of you. Which I thought was quite amusing. But for eight weeks, it was, you had to be in the building at a certain time. You ate breakfast at a certain time. You had your lunch, which I fell foul of first time. And, I, and I'll never forget Gary Speed's reaction because he, he looked as though he was going to chew my arm off. I sat down at lunch. I went and got a big plate of lunch. I sat down. There was Gary Speed sitting right opposite me. Shea Given was sitting to the left. And I'm tucking in. And I'm looking at the two of them. And, and Speed, I was looking at me. As the, as I thought, he's going to he wants, he's looking at me player. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And um, anyway, manager comes in. Bob, so Bobby comes in. It was five to one. And he went through me like you'd not believe. He, went, he had a right go at me. And I'd only been there a few days. And he just said, Nobody eats in this building before one o'clock. Nobody eats in this building before one o'clock. He went mental. And I was looking at Speedo and, and Shea. And anyway, I just, sorry, boss, sat there. And, he, and I looked at, and I said to Speedo, why didn't you say anything? He went, you learn the hardware. You learn the hardware. And what Bobby had was nobody ate there at one o'clock for the simple fact is everybody in the building had to stop at one o'clock. One minute to one. You had to get out from what you're doing. So if you're having a massage, you're having treatment, you're having whatever, you left mid 
in, everybody ate at the same time. He made sure, even the staff, everybody ate at the same time. Um, and I fell foul of that rule very, very quickly. And from there, I felt as though I was part of something in a unit. And I never looked back. You know, you were, it was so professional for eight weeks. And I felt as though I went to the West Indies as strong as I've ever been and fit as I've ever been. And 18 months later, ready to take on Australia at Lords, arguably, you know, one of the best seam bowlers in the world. So I want to touch on that, that first morning then in 05. An iconic, mm. legendary morning, really. Um, I was, I was there. I saw it happen. There was a look in your eyes, Steve, that maybe hadn't been there. English, English fans hadn't seen it at home, quite as intense as you were that morning. Were you, were you nervous at all, or, or did you have a kind of an inner, inner faith, inner confidence that this was, this was it, and this was your moment? Because that spell. You know, you, you, you broke Langer's elbow pretty much. You know, you took a clump out of Ponting's face and so on and took five for 30-odd on that first day. That was you at your peak. Did you feel like that on the, standing at the top of your mark before the first ball had even been delivered? Yeah, I think when you, when, you, when you look back at it, you look at that first morning and the Brisbane first morning, you, know, you go in preparation. And it's just simple. Preparation is everything. I'm, you know, I'd like to think I'm as honest as is they come. That first morning, to say nervous, yes, always nervous. I was nervous before every game I played. Um, but it was like an excitement. I was always ner- I was always excited about playing. Always, but it was nerves, that's all it was. When the crowd got going and they start playing the music, I felt as though that I always felt as though I enjoyed it. It was like a show. I know what people would say say if I, if I'd been on like a an actor on, on, a, on, on stage of a theatre, because I felt as though when I went outside and went over the white line with the crowd out, chest was pumping, it was 10 foot tall, and I feel as though I'm on stage. And that's how I, I handled the mental health aspect of the game. So that first morning, we were all buzzing, we were all, but the preparation had come. I'd played four games for Durham, took 30 wickets for Durham. You know, we won all four games. Um, and in one of them games, I think in one of them games, you played Lancashire. And when you look at the team sheets, it'd be interesting have a look at the team sheets from that Yorkshire, uh, the Lancashire-Durham game. It was like an international game in itself. Um, so the preparation going into that was phenomenal. We beat them in the one day, in the 2020. We took them on in a one-day series. And we, we had really Australia, probably as an Englishman, where we wanted them, I would say for the first time in probably 30 years, where we don't feel as though we can beat you, we know we can beat you. Um, and that was the confidence that that England team had. So when you, and, I, and I always describe and, and, and have a joke at it, and I've mentioned this to, to Ben McGraw, who I've done a, I did a few Ashes things with him last, year, uh, last time we were there. I always said they were more nervous than England at Lords that first morning. Because when you look back at it, we go aggressively and we go hard at Australia. That was not, in, not intentional. It wasn't an intentional, right, this is the plan. We go hard at them. That was what we've got. Andrew Flintoff, 90 mile an hour. Simon Jones, 90 mile an hour. Steve Armisen, 90 mile an hour. Hoggy, mid-80s. You know, this is the bowling unit we've got. The ball Langer got, that's his took down the fine leg. He does that all the time. It's his favourite shot. He just rides it, lets it come into him, it goes down the fine leg, off you go. Matthew Hayden got hit on the head and so did Ricky Ponton. 
I reckon in both in their 100 and odd test match career, you could probably count on how many times they got hit on the head on one hand and still have spare fingers. All three things happened within a 10-over period. That tells me, I think, they were more nervous than what we were. And I think that showed on that first morning. We let them get away in the middle, middle, middle of the, in the, that sort of middle of that first session. But we had them where we wanted them. And it was just the batters. Apart from Kevin, the batters didn't turn up. But we went away from Lords thinking, you know what? We can beat these. We can beat these because we've got 20 wickets. We've just got to get some runs. And I think because of that first morning leading into us getting 20 wickets, we still had an inner belief when we got to Edgebaston that we could win the Ashes against this, for me, was still the, the, the greatest team of all time. I, I want to I ask you in a bit about Brisbane, obviously, and you referenced it yourself. Mm. If the preparation was great going into Lords, then I can only imagine it would have been the polar opposite going into Brisbane. But mm. before we get there, you say you never had any doubt when Australia needed two to win at Edge, Edgebaston and you were at the top of your mark. Did you have any doubts at that point? Oh, there was. To be fair, there was doubt. There was, there was, there was doubts. There was doubts from about forty runs, forty runs out. Yeah. Um, we go from the, that was an unbelievable test match. You talk about roller coasters of a test match. That was you've gone from, you've gone from getting there thinking right, they're going to be bouncing after what happened at happened at Lords. McGrath falls over. Um, you know, the reaction of us, you know, I've joked it before, he's like, so when McGrath's still on that ball, you don't want to wish any professional, you know, a professional to get injured. But to be fair, there was 10 Englishmen in South African doing cartwheels when McGrath fell over that ball about 45 yards away. And then Ricky decides the emotion, see the toss, Ricky's, you know, you always stand, even do it now, still do it now. All the players will stand wherever wherever they are go to the big screen whoever's doing the tv toss goes up and it goes to the first captain as a as a bowler you know if it goes to your captain yes i could be sitting with my boots up for a day and a half it goes to the opposition captain it's like oh no here we go and when he went to ricky it was oh no this is the flattest wicket in the world here <laughs> and when he said we were bowl first that another emotion just going up and down and then that first year, 407, I think it was, in 80 overs. It was just, it was just phenomenal. And to come to the end, you know, extra half an hour the night before, on the Saturday night, we get Clark um, with a slower ball. And it was literally just nothing left. It was, it was unbelievable, to be fair. There was just nothing left. I, 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 I'd bowled three balls, I think. Steve, you weren't renowned for the for slower balls, let's be fair. Well, it wasn't no, I had, the worst, I, I, had, I had the worst one in the history of the game. I had the worst slower ball in the history of the game. Triscothic and Flintoff always said that at first slip. As I was about to bowl it, they were like, just slumped their shoulders and go, oh no, he's going to again. Um, but this time, it, this time it worked. I would say, I'd, which I had tried early in the over to get Warney on strike. Couldn't get him on strike. So I'd literally thrown everything at Michael Clark and nothing had worked. So just thought, why not? And, and it did. He was the only one that's ever not picked that slow ball. So um, <laughs> one's not bad, but it was, it was an important one. But then we came out the next morning, you knew Shane was going to be, he was going to be like he had, you knew if it was a fight, Shane Warren would stand up and fight. And Brett Lee was a champion throughout that whole series, to be fair. 
Um, but you just thought, we, there's, there's no chance of us not being on Broad Street about 12 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, starting to walk about, singing one, one to Australians. Um, but it, eventually it did happen, but it, uh, it got nervous. It got nervous. For, 40 runs out, we're thinking, oh, you know what? We might not get over, over it here. But then you always believe there was that one chance. And then the catch went, went down, 15 runs to win. And you think, that's it. It's gone. Um, I always felt in control when I had the ball in hand. I was shaking like a leaf when I was at fine leg when Fred was bowling. So when Freddie was bowling, I was shaking, thinking, just don't come to me. Don't do what happened to Simon. Um, but when I had ball in hand, I felt as though I knew my job. Back me, back you as a, as a bullshit goes. You back your skills that you can, you know, you can get a number eleven out. And fingers crossed, we we finally got over the line. And the euphoria of leaving Edgebaston, thinking right, we're going to win now. It was a case of getting to Edgebaston. You know, we we could we could get back in this series. I think when we left Edgebaston, it was, we're going to win now. They've got to bring McGrath back. They're going to have to bring McGrath back at some point early. The bowling attack, apart from Warney and Brett Lee shot, we can, you know, we can beat these. We can beat these. Um, and that was something we could take away from, from, from Edgebaston. On, obviously, you get asked about the, the slow ball to Clark quite a lot. But I've always thought that the, the ball to get rid of Kasparovic at the end got a risky ball to bowl when the opposition only needs three to win you know that could fly off his handle that goes for a one bounce for game over that could bounce a little bit too much off the pitch game over what, what were your thoughts going in to bowl that ball that one I've done a few sort of podcasts about the the, the old five stuffs in in this lockdown period and uh, the way I remember it is I'd lost the left so I'd gone tired I didn't realize how tired I was I lost the left side um, the, the adrenaline was going, so I kept your legs going, but action was all over the place. And I lost the bouncer and I just couldn't bowl it. I kept dribbling off and going down leg side with nothing on it. But then it come to you know, two runs to win, three runs to win. You're six foot six and you bowl 90 mile an hour. What is the ball that you have made your name on? So I, I'd been working, to be fair, I'd been working up to, to bowling a short ball probably for about an over. 10 balls, 10 balls are from me uh, previous to that. And I bowled one about three balls earlier and it just dribbled and it was awful. And I thought, that's it, I'm not going not gonna to do it again. And then for some reason, the man, the little Spanish fellow on your shoulder telling you, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. He told me that I had to do it and you know, eventually it worked. Um, but that was, that was a thought process. Go and I watched, you watch the whole thing again. I didn't bowl hardly any bounces on that Sunday morning because when I did, you know, the, the one or two I did bowl early, uh, they weren't coming out right. So, and the pitch was so slow. It just, it, it wasn't worth it. And like you say, we were, we were trying everything. But, you know, the way, to be fair, the way Brett Lee played on that, he hats off. He was phenomenal. I think he run about five singles without his bat. We hit him. Me, me and Andrew Flintoff hit him everywhere. And he still kept coming at us. So, you know, fair play. You know, Brett Lee bowled a lot of, he was aggressive as a bowler. And he bowled, you know, he bowled some, some really, really fast and nasty spells. But, you know, he took, he took some bombardment you know, off us. 
Um, he took it the right way, and you know, fair play to him. He was he was a champion through that series. Um, going back a little bit, I I still can't get the image of you training at Newcastle United out of my mind. <laughs> what, were, what were you actually doing? Like, were you doing set piece training with Nobby Solano, or like, no, no, I, I never went outside. I never because they kept it. We kept it so quiet. I never, I never left. I never left the building as such. I never went outside. I'm a Newcastle United supporter, and I was not putting Bambi on ice legs anywhere near a ten million pound footballer with the potential to trip over them or anything like that. I think I did one session inside the the indoor indoor in the aircraft hangar indoor gym where I had a little bit of a game. But apart from that, I wouldn't wear Newcastle's kit. I wore my own kit, um, and I made sure that it was done. It was done that way. I tried to detach myself from it, and you, and I basically just did the way the program worked. I would work with the injured players, so I would go in in the morning. I would go in in the morning, and when the players are going out and doing that stuff outside um, on the training pitch, I would be doing my individual sort of cardio stuff. And then when the players came in, I'd do a session with the players. We'd have lunch and then the injured players would do another session after lunch. And I would do another session with the injured players in the gym after the lunch and be finished. Yeah, you'd be finished for about, about two o'clock-ish. So that was the way it worked. Very rarely did I go outside and and training, basically where other people, the public, could see me. It was mainly in-house stuff um, and with injured players. So that was that was me wanting to do that because I didn't want to be encroaching in their space. I didn't want to be have anywhere near come anywhere near a player getting injured or anything like that. Um, and it worked perfectly. I built up some good friendships. Um, and I built up a different way of seeing how professional sport worked because you know, I, I was a professional cricketer. I wanted to be a professional footballer, but the little the insights to the way the professional football and world worked was a little bit different to what to what I thought and how professional these guys these guys were. So, you know, all in all, it was a great experience, and it was something that yeah, I'm forever thankful to. So, Bobby, great man. You watch his documentary. You hear, see people talk about him. He loved his cricket. And I mean he loved it. So Bobby loved his cricket. And um, I was fortunate when Sir Bobby left, three or four managers who came after him still let me train. Um, and I remember Graham Souness letting me train. And he, he says, look, I don't know anything about cricket. I'm a Scotsman. But the senior lads here, you've been here a while. They say they can trust you. You know, you can, um, you can carry on training. So, because I thought I was done when, when Sir Bobby was done. But when other managers came in, they, they let me train. And it was a better man. We didn't have Loughborough at the time. England didn't have Loughborough. They just had going back to your county. And more often than not, we, us as a county, we were on a six-month contract. So there's nobody there. So to train, there was nowhere really to train. I was an hour from Durham. I was 20 minutes to Benton, where the training ground was. So for me, it was perfect. Um, eat right, train right, and uh, be around people who were, you know, playing in a professional game, even though it was a different sport. It was, it was, a, brilliant, it was a brilliant thing for me to do. Steve, I've got a question for you, very briefly. Mm. Um, Saudi takeover, yes or no? It looks like it. I think it's happening. 
I, I hope it happens. I hope it happens. Somebody's going to take over from, from Mike Ashley because what's happening at the minute is, is shocking. You know, the, the club are taking money out of people's bank accounts and there's no, there's no, there's, there's, there's no football even close to coming with supporters in. Um, I've got a season ticket. I've got two with my son. For the end of the season, it's probably looking about 100 quid's worth of tickets. Now, if you give us the option, you know, not on the sort of on the breadline, so I'd quite happily uh, the money gone into the NHS fund, coffers, charity that they've got, or the Newcastle United Foundation, who have been doing fantastic work with the food banks and everything that goes with it. But for him still to take money out of bank accounts, it just tells me everything about what Newcastle have become. And there's a lot of people, well, there's 99% of the people that support Newcastle United have got no time for Mike Ashley, the way it's gone. And I was just hoping, Phil, I really was hoping that the government and the, the, the Premier League have got their heads together and said, do not announce, do not announce the Saudi takeover because the amount of people that will be on the streets when Newcastle United are taking over. It'll be phenomenal. There was 35,000 when Shearer signed for Newcastle. There'll be more outside St. James's Park when Ashley leaves than when Shearer came. So, you know, fingers crossed that it does happen, whether it's the Saudis or the Americans, but the whole club needs to change hands because it's not, it's not the club that we, we, all, we all love at this moment in time. I think, uh, I think you said recently, I think it was on one of the Sky Sports podcasts about the 06-07 series in Australia, that whoever captained you guys that series, you'd have lost 5-0. Um, the tour started dreadfully, yeah. you lost the warm-up game, etc. Do you think, obviously you were great friends with Flintoff, there's a good chance that Ben Stokes captains England this summer. Do you think there's a danger that the captaincy for Stokes might be a burden, we might lose some of the, the quali- his, his very best qualities if he has that, yeah, that additional responsibility? Well, let's... You know, put in, in in this sort of context, Andrew Flintoff captain England in an Ashes series in five test matches away from home with the one days and the World Cup that was coming after. Ben Stokes is hopefully going to captain England for one test match. I don't think you, I don't think it's right to compare the two. If, for instance, Joe Root gets injured and doesn't go on the next tour, and there's a captain for four test matches in a longer time, then I don't think it should be Ben Stokes. No, I, I, I really don't. For a one-off test match, I've always described Ben Stokes as the perfect vice-captain. Somebody who can bounce ideas off, somebody you can talk to. He's got a great cricket brain. His knowledge is excellent. You can just see the way he bats. He's, got a, he's always thinking about the game. He knows the situation. You, know, you just look at that head in the innings, which is phenomenal, the way he... He took, he took the gears he went through, but he also took the emotion at the time and the way the game was, and he knew how to get himself through that. That tells you he thinks about the game a lot. So for me, I think Ben Stokes is a perfect vice-captain to come in for a one-off test match, to bounce ideas off and create a great sounding board. Anything longer than that, I think then you start eating into his time, which is his batting time and his bowling time and you know the, the, the maverick that he is. So... At this minute in time, I don't think it'd be a problem. Ben Stokes for one-off test match. The other, the other argument is who else? Josh Butler for me. I desperately want Josh Butler to score runs because I think I want him in my test team, but he's very close for me of looking over his shoulder. He has to be looking over his shoulder for the next person in. So 
in the end, you're looking at players who aren't even in the side. Rory Burns at the minute is not in the side. So I think Ben Stokes is right to be talked about. It's right that he captains for this one game. But longevity, no, I don't think over a long, pref, like, uh, long period of time, I don't think that works. It didn't with Andrew Flintoff, but it, didn't because, it wasn't because he wasn't tactically aware. It wasn't because the job was too much for him. It wasn't because he was the all-rounder. We could be 5-0 because we weren't very good. We didn't have a very good team. We were, as a, as a unit, going over. Bear in mind, we lost, we lost Triscothic. We had lost Jones. We had lost Vaughan. Giles, you know, Ashley Giles was struggling because of what was happening personally with his, you know, we're, you know we knew what was happening with Steena and everything that was going on that. So, and Ash was a big player for us both on and off the field because he was, he was like a big brother to all of us. We were a, a, a generation and then Ash was the sort of a little bit older that could hold us all together. I don't think it had anything to do with, if anything, Flintoff took a bullet for, for English cricket because... Strauss wouldn't have done anything anything different. We still would have, we still would have lost against that side. They were gunning for us. They were ready for us. Um, and when you when you look in the coal lighted there, it had I, I don't think it had anything to do with the first ball going where it went, or the captain being Andrew Flintoff and not Andrew Strauss. They were better than what we were, and we were we were nowhere we were nowhere near good enough. And talk about that first ball. Talk about the preparation. The preparation was huge. I said it before, we played Adelaide in Adelaide the week before. And 15 minutes before the toss, I felt something go on my side. And that was, that was, I thought that was the end for me of my trip because bear in mind, I'd retired from one day cricket. I thought my side had gone. And you're looking at a side strain, minimum six to eight weeks. So I'm looking and thinking, well, the biggest game and yeah, the, for me is next week. I didn't play in Adelaide, managed to get myself a little bit bowling, but nowhere near, hardly any bowling going into that into that first test of Brisbane. And we, we seen what happened. But when I look back at it, it's probably from a mental mental point of view, that's as strong as if anybody wants to talk about mental strength, yeah, I, I, I could like to think I could write the book because after where that first ball went, to still be in the team and still be on the field for every day at Sydney, bear in mind we got beat 5-0. I think strength-wise, like from a mental strength point of view, I think um, I was pretty pleased with, with how I coped with everything that, that, that got thrown at me because, boy, I coped it. You, know, you can imagine going, at, going in everywhere I went after what happened at Brisbane um, to still be playing. I felt as though I I ticked a few boxes for myself rather than uh, than anything else. But it tells you that my preparation was probably three weeks behind, and I got better as the test series went on. So it just shows you you know you need to be prepared to go into to test series because if you don't, you're always playing catch up. And we were nowhere we were nowhere near at the races. You said a few years back when Jonathan Trott left the 13-14 Ashes tour, if he never plays in international cricket again and is happy, that is a better outcome than him playing and suffering. Do you wish, because mm. you're, you're admirably open about some of the struggles you had when you played, do you wish that you played less international cricket at some points? Are there specific points that you remember and think, oh, I probably shouldn't have played then? Um, there's one or two games I probably shouldn't have played. Um, the Oval, the Ashes, I was struggling then. 05. The year before, 04, I... I, I 
at the Oval, I, I really struggled big time. I think that was against the West Indies. Um, Port Elizabeth first Test match against against South Africa. I, I feel fortunate that I'm even if, if it wasn't for Kurt Russell, the England physio, um, and how he dealt with me throughout that whole three week period. Um, if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't have carried on on that tour. Um, but no, I, I always, I always felt, to be fair, whenever I went over the white line, I was safe. Whenever I was in my own headspace, I was, a, I was, a, I was hard. I was, I was a difficult person in my own space, in my own time. So whenever I was by myself, I was a nightmare because uh, I would think about the, everything else that I, that I shouldn't be thinking of, what was going on at home, what was going on around the world, everything that was just mind was racing a thousand miles an hour. So whenever I went on the field, I felt as though that was my saviour, where you talk about Marcus. Marcus struggled to go on the field. Jonathan Trott struggled to go on the field. I struggled the other way. So that's why I shared a room. So we, you know, me and Freddie got interconnecting rooms and we got, we got the, the mickey taken out of us for, for having interconnecting rooms. It was just, I needed somebody to be around. I needed somebody there all the time. I took a dartboard on tour because I knew people would want to play darts. And I'd have, you ask any of the lads that played in my era with me, my door was never, ever closed. And I had suitcases full of sweets and all sorts that every single person would walk by for a bag of sweets. But it was, they didn't realize how much they were saving me. You know, they were helping me by coming in, having a bit of crack, having a chat and going away. Because that was when I was at my struggle. Preparation days were the worst things in the world for me. Days off were the worst things in the world for me because the minute I was alone and in my own headspace, then I was, I knew trouble was starting. So that's why you know, I put a little, you know, a little mechanism in, a, in place to help when I was away from the game. But the minute I crossed the line and went up the field, nah, that was my, that was my stage. I was, that was my theater. That was my stage. And I was going on there to perform. Um, and if, I hadn't been prepared before that because things were coming into it. Then fair enough, I probably didn't perform as well as I, I could have. But at the end of the day, I was not going to turn around and say, I'm not fit to play because that was worse. So, you know, if I felt as I was getting injured, it was right, send me home rather than give me a week's rest. Because if you give me a week's rest, I'll be a gibbering mess by the time the following week comes. So I'm either going to play through the injury or you're going to have to send me away. And that's the way I, I had to deal with, deal with my career. With the, with the removal of, of the career, the removal of the theatre, as you call it, your stage, what replaces it for you? Um, golf, family, um, football. I tried to, I've tried all sorts. I had a go at sort of managing a football team. Um, How did you get on with that? You get sent off? I got yeah. There was a there was one or two. There was an incident where the referee referee got in the way a little bit, but <laughs> it was it was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. It's something that it was the right thing to do at the right time. Um, and I don't know if you've seen go on what the what the club's just done. Um, and it's brilliant. I don't know if you've seen on on Twitter t when you finished. Have a look at Ashton Football Club. During this lockdown, they give a lifetime season ticket and a like a, a, sh a club shirt to to a fan who he used to sell. He's 
Down syndrome guy, a kid called David. He used to sell the domino cards before the games. Yeah, you know, like the the football cards, pound a number, whoever wins, and it's and it was it was it's brilliant what the club have done. But a great story with with David that we came, I came off. It was chucking it down, middle of winter, chucking it down. I come out off from the field. It's about eight minutes to three, ready to sort of rev them up before we go out. I was soaking wet, shorts shorts t-shirt on. Nothing on it, nothing else, yeah, in my pockets or anything like that. And David's asked if I wanted a number on the football card. And I said, David, I've loved one. I said, but I've got no money. I said, I'll put, put my name on one and I'll go and get them. I'll, I'll pay you when I've done. And he went, no, no money, no team, and just stormed off. And he just <laughs> ran away from it. He just, he, he, away he went, kept on selling his card. And the club, of, it's a great club. It's a really good club. It was my club. I played for them. Um, and it was a time where it fell, it fell right. I was training around there. The guy who was there before, uh, the job became, and I just thought, right, why not? Have a go. And did, you know, I was nearly three years there, and it was right to leave at the right time because I didn't think the club was getting run properly. There was a lot more. You know, the chairman became, in his own, in his own right, he became, you know, he's an MP for, uh, he's a Labour MP, and he... He was, I felt as though he was taking his eye off what the club was needing. So I, I, I walked away and I thought it was the best thing to do at the time. And I'd, I'd love to do it again, but things like that was what got me going. But now I've got a, a nearly, she's nearly two, my granddaughter's nearly two. And I love playing golf and I love commentating on the game. I've been to South Africa with Talk Sport, went to the West Indies with Talk Sport. Hopefully we'll go to India when the India series is going. Mm-hmm. What annoys me about some seasons is when I hear former players get bitter about what's happening in the game. And that annoys me because I look back and I think I had, I can't, I always want England to do well. Always want my, the, the, the country and, and, the, and Durham to do well. Um, and I don't see it when people get, Get sort of bitter, and they don't want to, don't want, uh, want, want the country to do, or the England team to do well. You, as a, as a pundit and as a, a commentator, you have to be as honest and professional as you possibly can. So, like I said many times, Josh Butler, I want to see him. He should be. He's next in line for the ODI captain. Brilliant. For me, my honest opinion is that he's, he's, he's dangling on thin ice for me with the Test matches because of. The amount that's over 30 odd test matches and only got sort of 100. But I also look at what a fantastic player he is and think just give him a little bit more time because if he does crack it, what a player we've got. So that's not me being sort of nasty towards Josh Butler. I think it's trying to be as, as critical but as positive as it possibly can be. And I think that gets me going and keeps me going from a, that point of view that I've had my career. I loved every minute of it. It's somebody else's turn now. Don't care how much they earn. Don't care where they go and play. And, yeah. But, you know, you want them to be successful and fingers crossed. I think England, like I said, right at the very start, I think England have got about 20-odd players now who I think could make England the best test team in the world, the best ODI team, or white, best white ball team in the world. And fingers crossed, when we come out of it and we get back playing again, that they, they get there because... They've got a fantastic coach in Chris Silverwood. Great backroom team. And I don't think there's a better time for me to play cricket for England as a young player to try and get in this team. Because if you get in the team, 
it means you're a good player because I think there's a strong unit there, and I, and I, and I hope to see, I hope that they do well in this in this next six month period because if they do, it means they're getting through this, and they've gone back to play sport, which everybody wants them to do. It means they've gone to Australia and done well in 2020 World Cup, and it means they've gone to India and and conquered India, and if they can do that, they can then go down as arguably one of the best teams that that England have ever had. Fingers crossed to do it. A great note to end the show on. Thanks, Steve. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends. And if you're feeling extra kind, why not leave us a five-star review on the podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.